Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. Is Boris Johnson a low-tax, small-state Tory, or is Boris Johnson a high-tax, Gordon Brown-style politician? For... There is a battle on for the soul of the Conservative Party, for sure. Three... It's become impossible to say that you've done Brexit if you've abandoned the six counties of Northern Ireland, which is part of the United Kingdom. It's completely out of order that the EU is messing with Northern Ireland. They're messing with the Good Friday Agreement. One. We have liftoff. And welcome once again to Planet Normal, the Telegraph podcast with me, Liam Halligan, and ordinarily Alison Pearson. But my co-pilot's on a week off, so I'm delighted to be joined by a good friend of the podcast and previous standing co-pilot... Baroness Claire Fox. Great to have you with us, Claire, on the Rocket of Right Thinking. Great to be back. When you're discussing the 70s, I hope that's no comment on my age. (laughs) Now, the UK's cost of living crisis is biting, with millions of households struggling to afford the basics as food and fuel prices spiral. Amidst high inflation, new figures show the UK economy shrank in April as well as March. With prices rising faster than wages, consumer spending power is waning. So many firms across a variety of sectors faced with rising costs themselves are producing and investing less, pushing the UK towards recession. Children of the 70s, you and I, Claire, we indeed remember those bad old days of high inflation and economic stagnation, or stagflation, as economists call it. We recall widespread strike action too, another feature of the 70s starting to make a comeback. As we speak, though, the government's plan to send illegal migrants to Rwanda has been thwarted, temporarily, ministers insist, after a European Court of Human Rights injunction. The government's also embroiled in a row over the Northern Ireland Protocol, of course, another breach critics of Boris Johnson claim of international law. We'll come to the economy soon, co-pilot Clare, but let's start with the government's judicial jousting. What does Baroness Fox make of all of this? It's almost as if the Johnson government's determined to pick legal fights. There is a real problem, I think, that when any sovereign national government wants to do something, they're surrounded by people who say you can't do that because of international law. So in this instance, I have some sympathy, a rarity, with the government because I do think that they've got a real problem on their hands. And since I've been in the Lords, every piece of legislation that's discussed, people say... Can we hold this up against whatever treaty, some international treaty, some international law? And then you can't do that is effectively what they say. So I was heartened that they at least said they were going to take on the protocol question because I thought that was essential. And the Rwanda thing, what a mess. They just look hopeless because they basically said, we're going to do this. And then they can't do it. I haven't been able to do it. And I think if the problem is international law, then I do think we should look at that international law. 
Regular listeners will know you well. You are very much a person with a background on the left. During the Brexit campaign, you campaigned for Brexit, as indeed many people of the left did, as indeed Anthony Wedgwood Ben did back in the day. And you're now in the Lords, and you are well-known, Claire, within the Lords for really drilling down into these legal questions, these issues of constitutional protocol. And that's why I think you are the perfect co-pilot standing for us this week. What is your sense of this, let's start with Rwanda, of this Rwanda policy? The government was elected on a manifesto pledge to take back control, not least of our borders. Boris Johnson's 80-seat landslide in December 2019 was above all about implementing that referendum result from 2016. Surely, if the elected chamber has a majority based on that manifesto pledge, the upper house, the lords, which many present as an ermine-clad chamber of remain, they cannot stop that, can they? Well, that's exactly the problem that we've got. I actually don't like the Rwanda scheme. You know, it's not to my taste at all. I'd probably be much more liberal about immigration in general, although I think that one of the things that we've got into a mess on is that we're not allowed to talk about immigration. We now have to describe everybody as a refugee. And mm. if you don't, you kind of fall foul of the right, the great and the good. But a government says we're going to take control of the borders by doing the Rwanda scheme. So what that I don't like it? But the idea that then you can sort of have this external body of law that's used to stop it. And when we were discussing the Nationality and Borders Bill in the House of Lords, people kept referring to the 1953 Refugee Convention as though it was like a God-given rule that you could never breach. So the idea that we should update the law or that, I mean, I actually think the Bill of Rights that they're bringing in is well worth looking at. I mean, you can't just keep saying human rights law, human rights law, human rights law. A sovereign government has to do this. So the problem the Tories have got is they do look ineffectual in the face of that international law. Will they have the courage to take it on? All different question, isn't it? I'm just not sure. Ineffectual is one way to describe it. I'd agree with that. They also look in the eyes of mainstream broadcasters and, as you say, the great and the good, they look cold-hearted. They look barbaric. It's interesting that while you don't support the policy personally, you do think it's wrong that the policy of an elected government with a very clear manifesto is being stopped by a sort of supranational body. It's one thing if the electorate stops something, but it's another thing to be told that even if the electorate wants something or a democratically elected government demands something and a piece of legislation is passed, it can't happen. You know, that's what Brexit was about, being told that you had no control over your laws, that there is no alternative. So you can understand people's frustration. On the heartless thing, you know, we've had members of the House of Lords, indeed the bishops, have all come out and said it goes against Justin the Justin Welby, no less. Yeah, but I mean, they, all of the bishops in the Lords signed a letter saying that this was ungodly. The words, you know, people are describing it as fascist, comparing it to sending people to the camps in Nazi Germany, all sorts of over-the-top stuff. I object to the Rwanda deal because I think it's impractical. I also think it's outsourcing. And I want an honest discussion about economic migration rather than this fudge on refugees. But what I really object to is being told that you can't discuss this without being considered to be a fascist and that you can't do it because of an international law that's used in an absolutely rigid way 
that stops a democratically elected government doing what it's mandated to do by the voters. That's why I highlighted at the top of the show, perhaps it is that Boris Johnson is bringing these legal fights onto himself, just like Dominic Cummings wanting to have a huge battle with Parliament, battle with the Remainers, battle with John Burko in order to galvanise a lot of the country to get their heckles up, if you like, precisely because they were being told they couldn't do something. A democratically elected government, even if they disagreed with it, was being stopped by a bunch of unelected judges. Yeah, so quite a lot of my colleagues and friends have this view. They actually think it's a kind of, it's quite conspiratorial, but they sort of see it as a way of them kind of upping the state to the point of culture war. You have to choose what side you're on, all the rest of it. Possibly that's true. I think it's over Machiavellian for me. You mentioned Dominic Cummings. I mean, they haven't got a Dominic Cummings. The point is that they'd have thought it through. I do think they wanted that plane to go to Rwanda yesterday, right? Uh, they didn't. They weren't able to send it. So they actually therefore look powerless in the face of something. I think it's slightly different with the Northern Irish Protocol because I, I do think that's a, a situation where because Boris has been weakened somewhat in terms of the support of people in the Tory party itself amongst the parliamentary Tory party after the vote. It has given some grist to the harder core Brexit people who say, you've really got to do Brexit now. The ERG circling. The ERG again, circling. I mean, I, I do think, you know... The European Research Group. Yeah, who well, made... They, we made him, they say. And they're not wrong, are they? They're not wrong. And, and also, as it happens, the Brexit party vote in that European elections was what gave the basis for Boris Johnson to become the leader. And he promised that he'd get Brexit done. Everybody knew the fishery deal was rubbish when the deal came through. And there was real problems with the Northern Irish Protocol. But kind of you gritted your teeth because it was you were frightened you weren't going to get over the line. And I remember that well, dilemma that myself. the Remain of Commons was going to completely exactly. stop it. David Frost has spoken very much on this, that he knew that this was a weakness, but they felt they could get around it. But what has happened subsequently is the EU has been completely intransigent on Northern Ireland. I don't want to rehearse all that. But therefore, I do feel in that sense, they are saying, bring it on, let's have the fight. And, you know, people have described it, commentators, and I've got some sympathy with this, as the third big Brexit battle. First was a referendum, then there was the stop the referendum being overturned battle, and now there's this one. But even in the last couple of days, I've noticed that Boris Johnson started saying, oh, we don't want to look like we're having a big fight. You think, well really don't bring this legislation through then. So I think he really would rather avoid this, but he won't retain the loyalty of a lot of cabinet members, I think, unless he really pushes this through. Because it's become impossible to say that you've done Brexit if you've abandoned the six counties of Northern Ireland, which is part of the United Kingdom. And even for those of us who think a United Ireland might be a good idea one day, in 2016, when that referendum happened, the United Kingdom included the six counties. You can't just have people going, oh, we didn't vote for you. People are basically saying that Northern Ireland should stay in the EU under the rule of the European Court of Justice. And that's not on. I think what's at stake here, Claire, both with these legal issues that we're discussing up top and the broader question of the economy, does he cut taxes to stimulate the economy or does he borrow, print and spend more, is a real battle for the identity of the Conservative Party. Is he a red meat Thatcherite or is he, as I suggested last week, going to serve up a kind of policy vegan sausage? Does he want to impress Jeremy Hunt or does he want to impress John Redwood? And I think for the most part, the Tory voters out there, they're much more interested in a low tax, small state 
Conservative Party to counter the Labour Party than they are in Labour-like Conservatives. But let's just stick with this Northern Ireland thing. You say, and I understand why, because you talk about it endlessly and with some expertise, you don't want to rehearse all the arguments about EU intransigence and so on. I'm astonished, Claire, as we hear this battle being hammered out over the airwaves, how little the government talks about EU intransigence. I'm astonished that ministers aren't saying more. Do you know that the EU's doing far more checks on that tiny little border in Northern Ireland with a tiny weeny amount of trade going on than they are across the whole of the rest of the European Union with its 350 million people and 27 economies, many of them with massive external borders. I think the EU, and I speak like you as somebody of proud Irish heritage, here we are, the two of us doing a Telegraph podcast. There you go. (laughs) What a turn up for the books that is. But, you know, like you, I think it's completely out of order that the EU is messing with Northern Ireland. They're messing with forces that they don't even understand. They are messing with the Good Friday Agreement. And I don't think the government's articulated these EU sort of guerrilla tactics nearly enough. And I certainly don't think mainstream broadcasters understand them. Well, actually, I think a lot of mainstream broadcasters tell you the story through the eyes of the EU. I mean, that's constantly amazes me that they kind of get away with that in a yeah. way. And you'd think that everybody in the UK side, in terms of the British government, couldn't be bothered to turn up at negotiations, we're ill-prepared. You know, it's just not true. I mean, just there's been true. loads and loads and loads of very high-level, serious meetings while David Frost was there, but since he's gone as well, it's kind of been going on, I think on, this right? trust has worked really, really hard on this. They've actually done everything. If you want, from my point of view, I think they've gone too far in Bend of the Sticks. The EU just unbendable on this. And they're unbendable because they just say, it's our rules, we'll dictate, that's it. So there's the detail of the the checks and the, the way it's driven everyone mad during the day, but it's the sense of sovereignty. is They're refusing to acknowledge the sovereignty of the United Kingdom in relation to Northern Ireland. The problem we've got here is that because they haven't detailed it, people just see it as the UK being like surly, but it's completely the other way around. We know during the whole pandemic period, I mean, these rigid EU rules that you're never meant to breach, well, they managed to breach quite a few of them, if you remember. Absolutely. I mean, you know, I thought it was freedom of movement, but they closed the borders left, right and centre. They they were protectionist. They, they, they broke every single one of their internal rules you know, in the fight and the scramble about vaccines and all the rest of it. But they're intransigent when it comes to the UK and Brexit. Because we know why. Because they want to give us a kicking. Absolutely. And and the the madness of major UK supermarkets that don't have outlets in the Republic of Ireland, but do have outlets in Northern Ireland. They fill trucks full of goods that are priced in pounds with their logos on that are bound for their Northern Ireland outlets. And they have to go through massive, massive border checks. They're not going to drive down to Monaghan and Cavan and start selling sausages in a lay-by sausages that are priced up in pounds. It's complete madness. And one thing that I hesitate to mention, Claire, but I will, partly because it's you here, you and I, you know, we are proud Brits, but we also have many loved ones and close blood relatives in the Republic of Ireland. Our people 
my closest relatives have benefited over many years, over generations from the common travel area, from the fact that they could come from Ireland to the UK, a much, much bigger economy and make good and work and live and be broadly accepted. I'm pretty amazed that the right of the Tory party, who often aren't friends of Ireland, you and I know, they haven't said, all right then, Dublin, let's scrap the common travel area then. I'm amazed that that hasn't come into play. And I think the fact that it hasn't come into play is an example, as you are suggesting, of just how reasonable the British political class has been on this issue. Yeah, I mean, some people would say they're overfudging it and I don't want them to fall out with uh, Dublin... I don't want those common areas. But I ab- no, but I absolutely agree with you because you if our, our identities apart, wouldn't if, it? If you heard Simon Coveney, the Irish Foreign Minister the other day, I mean he was hysterical, aggressive. I mean, as he often is, but you know, it's all the UK's fault about everything. And you think you won't recognise, and I know from the very short time, you know, the matter of seven months or eight months that I was in Brussels in the European oh, yeah, Parliament. Yeah, you're as an MEP. <laughs> but I mean, in that in that period of time, and, and I kind of, you know, I went to a lot of discussions on Ireland because we were still kind of doing that bit where you kind of get out. And I was just amazed when I talked to the representatives of the Southern Irish and, in fact, some of the parties from the North of Ireland, which was they basically were of the opinion that the UK had made a terrible decision in voting for Brexit and it wasn't going to happen. I mean, that was it. And they just talked to you like you were an idiot. And I kept saying, even if you don't agree with me, as Democrats, you might want to take notice of this. Now, when people sort of talk about possibility of a border poll, and there's also been referendums in South of Ireland recently on abortion, all sorts of things. I mean, when you win a referendum, you enact the referendum. That's a straightforward matter. But they're basically saying, not on this bit of Ireland. So it's got very dangerous because it's become a way that they've basically said to people, and this is always a worry, democracy doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what you vote for. And that's why we're going back to the Rwanda thing. It doesn't matter whether you voted to close down the borders. It doesn't matter what you voted for. The people who know best will decide. Other people. And that's going to lead to a backlash, and it's very dangerous. We focus, Claire, on these legal, constitutional, judicial issues, which I know you specialise in and you will be having your say in the House of Lords. And I'm sure many people will take note of what you say. But let's just go back to the economy. We learnt this week that the UK actually shrank our gross domestic product during April. It shrank in March as well. Of course, once you get two successive quarters of contraction, that's a recession, As Planet Normal is published on Thursday morning, the Bank of England is about to make its latest interest rate decision. We are moving into a world of economic stagnation and high inflation, possibly inflation getting higher for months to come. We are having the prospect thrust upon us of a lot more strike action. The RMT has come up with three one-day strikes next week week, which will bring much of the train network of our country to a standstill. Is this back to the 70s? I can understand the analogy. I mean, actually, I, I'm rather worried it's worse than the 70s. I mean, I do, In what way? I do. Well, because I just feel as though there's very little economic coherence to what's been put forward and what's being proposed. And I think that because of a political shambles, I'm just very anxious about where we're going. I also think that 
you know, I listen to government ministers on this one and they'll say things like, we have full employment, everything's doing really well. And you think, stop saying that, right? We're not idiots. I mean, it's like being gaslit, isn't it? You think, but there's a lot of economic inactivity. You'll know that, and you, you know, I know... Millions been, have left the workforce. Yeah, you've discussed it here on occasions that I am worried about the fact that these days, many people will just say, I'm not working more than two days a week, but I'm going to get paid five days a week, you know, in the office. I mean, the kind of back to the, the, the return to work. What I mean is there's a kind of general sort of sense in which productive activity is grinding to a halt for cultural reasons, mm. partly as a consequence of the lockdown period and the hangover from that. I'm nice kind of like, can we go back? Because you were sort of posing it very much as, you know, what about the Thatcherite red meat and... I mean, I don't mind if they spend, but it's what are they spending on? And I think what they've misunderstood is, I mean, I can't see an industrial renaissance around the corner. I can't see them investing in major infrastructure projects with opening coal-fired energy sources. They won't even do the fracking issue. There's no sense of vision. So if you want, if the state was to say, we're going to kickstart this economy and really make a difference with it, Instead, what they're doing is they're treating everyone like welfare recipients. Mm. And I think they've made this terrible error because they think, because they've got the red wall voters in, they're kind of like poor people who need handouts. Uh, Everyone is really frightened about the energy bills and cost of living crisis. But they are immediately trying to satisfy that by giving out pounds, you know, minimal pounds here and there. It adds up. But, you know, that's not the point. Where's the light at the end of the tunnel? I want to know where's the economy growing from. And there's no sense of that at all, is there? So it's not just a question of just cut taxes and sit back and do nothing, which I think is a bit of a Thatcherite right view. My view is do something, but do the right thing. We are seeing some infrastructure, of course, though. Many people would say that HS2, Europe's biggest infrastructure project, doesn't provide a good bang for the buck. It's a kind of, it will, it will just increase the focus on London. It's the antithesis of levelling up. Of course, we've had Crossrail, which has been welcomed rightly by many people in London and the southeast. But how about getting Northern Powerhouse Rail? How about linking up those big northern cities into an economy to challenge London? How about some decent commuter routes from northern towns into northern cities? You and I know the service is terrible in those parts of the country, yet millions of people live there. It could be really, really productive. A lot of skill, a lot of industrial heritage, a lot of pent-up determination and aspiration. I am from North Wales and postponed family weddings in South Wales over the week. I mean, you can't get from North Wales to South Wales. It's going on kind of like, it's like a toy train. You know, yeah. it stops over. It's hopeless. Absolutely, that infrastructure is needed. But when I say infrastructure, I just mean a creative sense of, you know, new industries being developed, a, a real serious commitment to the production of cheap energy. I just don't see any imagination at all. Yeah. So it doesn't have to just be trains. You can see them fudging on housing, right? Oh, you know, no, no, I know, but <laughs> your expertise, I was just going to say. But I mean, what I mean is that would be a dynamic thing to happen, wouldn't it? If, if the odd home was being built, right? There are some homes being built, but not nearly enough. No, but not- they, they're, they're being built on the edges of villages, it seems to be a policy to maximise angst and upset. Exactly, exactly. I understand if you live in a beautiful village and there's loads of modern executive homes built on the edge, but that's not what we should be doing. We should be building new towns, Claire. Exactly. In our lifetimes, we're both 50 plus, right? I know. You look a lot younger. <laughs> oh, God. I'm a lot older and I look a lot older. But A new on. town has not been built in our lifetimes. Meanwhile, 
Only 2% of the UK's landmass is covered in housing. That includes gardens. I'm not saying concrete over our wonderful countryside, but I am saying that the Greenbelt is 150% bigger, i.e. more than double what it was back in 1979. I completely agree with you, but there's no leadership on this no, issue. No, absolutely no leadership. There's many things to criticise China on, obviously. But uh, <laughs> but knowing people who kind of work there and, and visiting it a few times over the, you know, the last decade, the fact that Literally, you'd see a city built in weeks. That is one of the upsides of a totalitarian dictatorship. I know, I agree. But what I mean is, it is physically possible to do it. Yeah, it can, it can be What done. I'm saying With- is, you could build new towns. I mean, you can, you know, we all mock and get, well, not we all mock, but there's a joke about the Milton Keynes thing. Great place Give me to live. More, Great. Fantastic. Give me more Milton Keynes. Many, right? many of my cousins moved to Milton Keynes yeah. and out of slums in London and had a great life. Yeah, because it's a... Surveys show it's a place where people are happy. More companies are created per head in Milton Keynes than any other part but, of the and, UK. But the fact that it's just so unique. Yeah. You just haven't got anything else. That's and right. as you say, when people say more houses should be built, even when the government tends to be saying we're going to build more houses, as you rightly point out, because of a lack of imagination, a lack of leadership, it does mean that you're kind of wrecking little local beautiful villages, That's right? right? You don't need Shoe to do that. in houses where they shouldn't be. You should be building brand new communities with new infrastructure. And that's what I meant about infrastructure. You know, a bit of creativity yeah, yeah. like that. But also new industries. But there is a battle, isn't there, Claire? Is Boris Johnson going to be a low-tax, small-state Tory or is Boris Johnson going to be a high-tax, Gordon Brown-style politician? It's incredible that we got this far into his premiership and we still don't know. We still don't know because it's entirely pragmatic at all times and I don't even think it's ideological. You know, when you say small state, as I say, I wouldn't mind if it was big state with purpose. But big state when it's just big nanny state and purposeless. And that's where I get confused. So there could be Johnsonianism. You know, you could say, I'm neither, I'm something new. But what we've got now is the worst of all worlds, which is we don't really know what it is and it's not being effective. And there is genuinely no vision. I mean, you know, I read the levelling up. I mean, you do read these things and think, I'm almost like looking for some hope because as much as I don't like the government, I do want the government that runs the country that I live in to resolve the fact that after two years of lockdown, for example, and to bring about some change that we can see palpably in relation to Brexit, taking advantage of the newfound power that they have to make decisions, that something would strike me as really giving me some hope that the society we're moving into will be better. I'm sad to say I don't feel that. Was Churchill the hero of the Second World War or a racist imperialist whose actions led to the Bengal famine? Should his statue be protected or pulled down? And can we really judge the figures of the past with the attitudes of the present? My name is Stephen Edgington and if you're enjoying this podcast, you might like History Defended, a new series from The Telegraph. In each episode, a leading historian defends a controversial historical figure. I play devil's advocate. There are some times in wartime when incredibly difficult decisions of life and death have to be taken. Winston Churchill, Clive of India, Bomber Harris and Oliver Cromwell. Men whose actions still influence the world we live in today. 
Today is victory in Europe day. Search History Defended in the same place you're listening to this. Helen Thomas is the co-founder and CEO of Blonde Money, a financial consultancy that takes its name from her striking mane of blonde hair. Hailing from Blackpool via Christchurch, Oxford, she has 20 years of experience in banking, fund management and politics. A former advisor to George Osborne, Helen holds a CFA, having aced those notoriously difficult chartered financial analyst exams. After a stint as a currency trader, she set up Blonde Money to bridge the often yawning lack of understanding between the wacky world of politics and financial markets. Our conversation began on the subject of economic media doom and gloom. Yeah, it is doom and gloom. And we must always remember that we do have a bit of a habit in Britain of falling into that pessimism trap, don't we? We do get very stuck in doom and gloom. Having said that, I do think there are genuine economic reasons to be concerned about the growth outlook. And frankly, I have been concerned about that since March 2020, when the pandemic broke out. You know, you and I have discussed this many times, you've probably been more optimistic than me. But look, I look at it big picture. And I say, we're in the middle of a technological revolution. The pandemic came along and accelerated that. And now we have a war, which is actually an economic war. When you put all of that stuff together, growth is going to be lower than it was before all this began and inflation is going to be higher and that is just the position that we're going to be in I think for the best part of a decade. Now I'm old enough to remember the 70s Helen you of course aren't but back in the 70s we did have this combination of high inflation and weak economic growth even recession we did have a wage price spiral we did have a lot of industrial action as trade unions became more militant When you talk to your clients who operate at a high level in financial markets, does this notion of a return to the 70s come up? Oh, yeah. Everybody loves talking about that. Everybody loves talking about inflation. And look, here's the thing. That is just one data point, the 1970s. Anyone who loves to crunch numbers knows you need a lot of data to try and assess if a pattern is repeating itself. And there are many things that are different now. For example, the collective power of wage bargaining, the strength of the unions back in the 70s. Very different world now. The OECD average is half what it was in the 1970s. So You mean the share of the labour market that's unionised? Yeah, exactly that. So that is a very different thing. And, you know, we're in a much more globalised world. We're in a much more virtual world. It's a very different kind of an economy. And actually, do you know what? Inflation's like this bogeyman. And there's no doubt it is politically toxic, which we may get into. But economically, we've just spent the best part of 20 years panicking about deflation. Everybody was really worried about very low inflation. We couldn't get it high enough up. I mean, you look at the Eurozone now, and the European Central Bank has had negative interest rates for quite some time because it was so stressed about being unable to meet its 2% inflation target. Okay, it's over that now. But there is an element to all of this where we should welcome some of this return of pricing power. Do you not agree, though, that this cost of living crisis is serious? The official numbers say it's as bad as it's been. Unaffordability of basic necessities among households. It's worse it's been since the 1950s. And in the end, when consumer spending power falls, when people struggle to afford the basics, when 
wages are eroded by inflation and that's what we're seeing now in the end that upends politics and we might not go back to the kind of feeling of national doom that we had in the 1970s the winter of discontent and so on but i'd say we're certainly in here for a summer of discontent helen So where I talked there about return to some inflation, now, of course, it is only good if the wages go up as well. You know, the key point there is real wages, as you just said. That is the nominal rate minus the inflation rate. So what's really happening to the purchasing power of your wage packet? And there is no denying that across the board people are struggling and suffering. And this is the thing about inflation. It affects everybody. Some of these other things that have happened, you know, I mean, 2008-9 financial crisis was dreadful. That was a bad recession. And it did affect people through things like not being able to access cash, not being able to borrow. That is no doubt a problem. But if you are struggling to fill your car up with petrol, if you cannot buy your rice and your pasta, that is affecting everybody and it affects them on a daily basis. So, That is the really difficult political part to this. Classically in politics, you try and please all of the people all of the time. You can't do that. So you try and please most of the people some of the time. We are now in a situation where you're going to please pretty much none of the people none of the time. This is the kind of situation that gives rise to revolutions. Although that might sound somewhat surprising, if you do want to look at historical precedents, persistent high double-digit inflation over years does tend to lead to some kinds of revolution. And you're already seeing some of that in the developing world. And look, we could see unrest. We certainly could see that in the UK. There was certainly lots of civil unrest in the 70s and also around the time of the poll tax. I agree with you, Helen. And I think that the Thatcher policymaking period was a revolution. The miners' strike was some form of revolution. We're not talking the Russian revolution and we upend capitalism, but capitalism will change and become more statist if people are upset with the system. If we can't deliver basic living standards to the vast, vast majority of our people, then politics will change. Politics will become a lot more extreme, won't it? Well, actually, one theme that we've been picking up on is a trend towards going left and going green by which we mean left-wing economically, we get a much bigger state, much more intervention, and going green, that, of course, a lot of this is done in the name of the environment and climate issues. And classically, we've seen it in Germany, where the Green Party are actually in government. But it's not just there. You know, the Australian election we've recently seen, yes, it was a return to power for the Labour Party, but there was this group called the Teal Independents, so-called because their blue conservativeness was tinged with green because they were (laughs) concerned about the climate side of things. Now, you could say, of course, that although we've had a Conservative Party in power for 12 years, it's not the same Conservative Party. It has also gone left and gone green. There has been a huge amount done in the name of the climate. We've moved on from hugger hoodie, haven't we? So We're still charging people 25% of their electricity bill is a subsidy to renewable energy industries and often large landowners. But do you think this is where they should be, Helen? You've worked at a high level in the Conservative Party. You used to advise a bloke called George Osborne. Do you think they should be sticking with these renewable subsidies and electricity bills? I mean, the Germans have scrapped them, even though, as you say, the Greens are part of the coalition. Do you think some of the green stuff should be shelved for a while, given that this is a cost of living crisis? I think that the German example is a really important one to look at because what is fascinating about the German Greens is they are pragmatists. They understand the long game. They know they've got to work with a strong economy. So although there tends to be this idea that 
green equals left wing economically. Actually, it doesn't need to. You can still achieve more right wing goals and bear climate goals in mind. Now, what we've got, of course, is the green goal of stopping this climate crisis in their terminology. But we're now facing a new crisis, obviously, with the war in Ukraine. And that is effectively a supply chain crisis on the world's commodities. And the difficult part, both with the green goal and with war, is that it doesn't stop overnight. These are long-term changes. And you can't just restructure an economy overnight. You can start to make changes, though. I mean, Liam, you often have farmers on your show on GB News, which I think is great to hear from the people on the front line who are doing this work in Britain. And they talk about very specific measures you could take that would, for example, mean that their fields could be redeployed rather than wildflowers for farming of food that we need, which is now difficult to get to because of the blockade in Ukraine. So there are changes you can make. And the way To do that is government has to prioritise. Government can say, yes, we do still care about the climate emergency, but this now securing our food supply is a greater concern. Therefore, we're going to shift the tax. So that is what we need the government to be doing. As you look across the piece of financial markets, that's what you do most days. How concerned are you? We've seen some pretty big drops on Wall Street in recent days and weeks. We've seen some pretty big drops On the FTSE 100, the London-based index of leading shares, we've seen the pound lose quite a lot of ground. That feeds into our inflation, of course. It makes our imports more expensive. Do you worry that after years and years and years of quantitative easing, central bank money printing, financial markets are kind of bloated, pumped up? Do you think there could be some kind of correction, Helen? Absolutely. That is the number one risk right now in financial markets is they have been propped up by that easy money, huge amounts. I mean, you cannot underestimate the scale of the intervention. Trillions, literally trillions of dollars of money has been printed. Now, the counterfactual is if they hadn't done that, I genuinely believe we would have gone into a Great Depression in 2020. So you know what? They had to. But you can't defer the cost of that forever. Effectively, what happened in that first couple of quarters of 2020 is that the financial markets rebounded sharply, given all of that liquidity that got pumped in. What happened at the time, I said, it's the recession that can't be priced. They couldn't let it be priced in or we would have it would have been a very bad recession, if not depression. So they had to do it. But that just means we deferred it. The financial markets got frothy they started to project that that boom, that huge amount of liquidity would continue forever. And now that, of course, the central banks have to pull back, they're trying to act on inflation expectations, the liquidity is coming out. What's that classic quote about when the tide rolls back out again, you see who's been swimming without their bathing suits. That is where we're up to. And therefore, I expect financial markets to be a lot wobblier ahead as that liquidity tide goes out. There is always the day of reckoning, but I don't think the big crash is coming just yet. As this podcast comes out on Thursday morning, Helen, the Monetary Policy Committee will be gearing up to announce its latest interest rate decision. We have seen several interest rate rises now in recent months, but interest rates are still very, very, very low by historic standards. Of course, they're lower than the rate of inflation, which means in real terms, interest rates are negative. How high do you think interest rates will go in this cycle? How high do you think they should go? Two potentially very different questions there, which would be, what would I do if I was Bank of England governor? 
And classically, of course, I wouldn't start from here in the sense that I would have taken back the quantitative easing sooner than they did and started on the interest rate hikes a bit sooner. I think that the base rate will struggle to be anywhere near 2%. And I suspect that once they get up to round about 1.75, if the economy performs as badly as I'd expect, then we will be talking about interest rate cuts again, because I believe we are headed for a recession. And in the end, the recession will destroy the demand that has been driving up some of these inflationary measures. So we kind of got to get out of our heads that I mean, this is not a normal economic cycle. It's not normal to shut down a global economy and then reopen it and then shut down again in bits of it and then reopen other bits and then find you don't have enough employees like we're finding with the airlines and finding got too many employees perhaps in places that don't need them. So to be fair to the central banks, it's extremely hard because they normally try and manage a business cycle. We are not in a business cycle. This is like 2020 was where the whole thing got ripped up. The jigsaw pieces of the economy got thrown up into the air. They're starting to land. They haven't all landed yet and they certainly haven't reconfigured into the new economy. And I do like a bit of Twitter, by the way, and I'll just share with you something that somebody put on Twitter in 2020. They said, I keep thinking I'll tell my grandchildren about 2020 and then I realise I'm going to be telling them about 2019. That economy is gone. We all live differently now. And that means it's just not a normal economic cycle. Yeah, that is interesting. I do think that we are starting to realise the extent to which lockdown has had massive, long-term, life-changing implications. I'm talking about things like work practices, the way we use property, the way that we think about transportation, the way we think about town planning. I agree with you, Helen. We're only really just beginning to get our arms around that. I just wanted to talk briefly a little bit about you. You hail from Blackpool originally. You're a proud northern woman. You <laughs> got yourself to Christchurch College, Oxford, no less. You've worked at the top of the Conservative Party. You've built your own business. You named it bravely Blonde Money after your own fantastic Barnet, if I may say so. <laughs> what is it about you and your background that's led you to have this really pretty punchy trailblazing career and I know there's a lot more to come yeah oh goodness me Liam if you were sat next to me you'd see I'm blushing that's incredibly kind of you look I'm fascinated by financial markets probably makes me a bit of a weird geek and I'm also fascinated by politics I thought back in the day I'd become prime minister that was the plan might be a vacancy soon I suppose but yeah I just wanted to bring those two worlds together because I think strangely they do not understand one another it's like I often say my business is like being a translator it's like translating Japanese into French or something because the two sides struggle because business is about what works but politics is about what sells and those two drivers can often be extremely different and can cause a lot of misunderstanding and having worked in both politics and in the city I just thought, yeah, I'm going to throw this all together into a research consultancy. And I can only hope that the world of politics does embrace the opportunity that's coming. You know, we've talked a lot on this podcast here about difficulties and challenges, and there's no doubt that people are facing that day to day. But big economic dislocations cause big political realignments. And there are moments where that revolution I talked about can be for better things can move us into a better world. So I hope that our political leaders will take and embrace that challenge and turn it into an opportunity. So having advised George Osborne in the past, what would be your advice now to Rishi Sunak, indeed, to Boris Johnson? How can 
the Conservative Party, which you've supported in the past, take advantage of this realignment that's coming, this change in the way we work, this change in the way that we live, driven not least by the reverberations from lockdown? They need to have a genuine strategy driven by an ideology. Now, ideology doesn't mean you have to be dogmatic. Sometimes ideology gets a bad rap that it means you're an extremist in some way. What I mean is we believe in certain things and that's why we're going to do these other things. Because if you're consistent and clear about your ideology, people know what to expect from you. They might not like it. They might suggest something different because of their own ideology. But business, people... The country knows what you stand for and what you want to deliver. So, look, I actually think, to be fair, that embracing the concept of going left and going green is a good one. And, look, it might sound shocking to say that, Liam, because I'm a hardcore Thatcherite. You know, when I grew up in the 80s, she was what inspired me to want to be prime minister. I am by nature someone who would be small state. But there are times when you have a national emergency and you can step in as a government and say, look, for the next 10 years... We're going to reshape things in this way. That is where, actually, I think you can go left and go green and still be a Conservative and deliver a better economy at the end of it. Hasn't the state got too big, though, when the tax take is the biggest it's been since the time of Clem Attlee and the immediate post-war Britain? Obviously, the Second World War led to a huge increase in the role of the state and few people would argue against that. But do we want to be at those levels of state involvement in peacetime in the 21st century. But it's not peacetime. It is like a war. You've got to embrace that crisis. And here's what I mean about going left and going green and the state being bigger. Now, look, of course, I naturally would never want to be raising taxes and I would not want to raise them on income. I think that if you want to raise taxes, there are other ones to raise when you could look at things like VAT on luxury goods, just for an example. But I also think, and again, this is anathema to me in normal times, I think... You can borrow. We have borrowed a hell of a lot. Let's keep borrowing. Actually, let's do it. But let's do it to create growth. Don't just borrow for the sake of it or make a £10 billion investment. You know, you've got to be making £100 billion investments. So borrow to spend on key infrastructure that actually does generate growth rather than HS2 or something. Yeah, a sort of Reaganite approach. Now, a lot of Conservatives of your generation do think this way. Do you feel that you're setting yourself up for a battle with the kind of Redwood Eye wing of the party, the Steve Bakers of the party, the ERG-type uh, Conservatives, and, with all respect, Helen, quite a lot of Conservative activists who do really like that side of the party? Yes, I think there is a battle on for the soul of the Conservative Party, for sure. And I guess what I'm trying to get at with that wing of the party is to say, look... I sympathise, I share many of your values, but you have to recognise the world has changed. You know, we need to look to new leaders and new ways of doing things. And we need to say that we live in a different world. But I do understand it's kind of a shibboleth for people, isn't it? Just hearing the word tax hike makes your stomach cramp and you might feel (laughs) sick as a Conservative. And I'm just saying, look, we've got to all bust out of these limiting ways of thinking because this is, people keep saying it's unprecedented. It is so unprecedented. I mean, it's excitingly unprecedented. But we've been in power for 12 years now. If we're going to keep selling ourselves to the British public, we've got to do something that does appeal to the new generation and the new world. Helen Thomas, great to have you on Planet Normal. There she is, Claire. Helen Thomas, I've got to know Helen 
Well, over recent months, she often appears on my GB News show, On The Money. She is very, very financially literate person, but she is steeped in politics. She's been on the Conservative candidates list in the past. And I tell you, I wouldn't be surprised if she did re-enter politics at quite a high level at some stage in the future. In many ways, I hope she does, because that is a really fascinating and intelligent conversation. Wasn't it? I didn't agree with all of it. A couple of things that she said that just really stood out for me. She made a case for ideology, which is very unpopular. Now, I'm the director of the Academy of Ideas, <laughs> so I like all this ideology, <laughs> ideas stuff. I think when she was talking about strategy and new Conservative Party or any of these different things, these are the kind of conversations that all political parties should be having, not looking back to their pasts, but trying to actually work out what they stand for. And it feels to me as though politics at the moment is performative, the Tories are kind of like, you were suggesting this earlier about some of the recent things, whether it was a Rwanda thing, they need to be seen to be doing something mm, rather yeah. than tackling issues. You've got a big debate at the moment about Starmer, whether he's boring or not, should he wear a different set of clothes? I mean, these and are all like... the identitarian uh, stuff, the absolutely. gender stuff, the trans oh, stuff. Oh, yeah, well, don't get me started. I mean, that's another, another <laughs> steady, discussion. Steady. That is That is my area of um, normal obsession. No, there are wisps of steam. Exactly, exactly. But we won't go down that for now. Alan was saying, like, we're, it is a war in a way. Everything's changed. I also think we have to understand the roots of where we came from because when we started the lockdown of the economy, the unprecedented closing down of the world economy, I can't even begin to imagine that happened. I sometimes forget it happened. But also we had serious problems before that. The economy was just kind of trundling. I mean, it just wasn't very good. I wanted to use Brexit as a kickstart for yeah. all sorts of imaginative plans. To move it from sort of one, one and a half percent growth to two, two yeah. and a half percent. And, and to have that growth. ambition. But I yeah. therefore I also think on the ideology front, I want people like Helen, we at the Academy of Ideas that we've got an event on, which is the, the roots of the new normal. You know, it's understanding historically, philosophically, how we got here mm. in order mm. to move forward. Mm. Mm. And I thought she was just the kind of person I'll be in touch with her. Let me Tell me. <laughs> I'm sure you will, Claire. Helen Thomas has probably just got herself a gig at your Battle of Ideas <laughs> festival, which attracts a big crowd every year. She is indicative of a sort of coming generation of young conservatives. They are a little bit more statist. It strikes me that these are precisely the conversations which the Tory party should be having. These are the conversations going on inside the Prime Minister's head himself. He doesn't seem to be able to resolve them. But just before we move on, I did want to ask you, Claire, when it comes to ideology, we are facing in this coming week the strikes from the RMT. It will be a big deal. I think it will really lead to lots of headlines relating to back to the 70s. What do you make of it? What should the Tory party be saying about this? What should Labour be saying? I don't think it's back to the 70s in this instance. I made a point earlier that I don't w think that the way that you kind of deal with working class people in the middle of a affordability crisis, this terrible fear that people have about how they're going to survive and get through the things that Helen was discussing, is just simply by giving more money, you know, vouchers for your energy. That's one thing, but it's so superficial. So I rather admire a trade union that says... We didn't bring this on. We didn't close down the country. We didn't close down the economy. We're not responsible for inflation. We want decent wages for our members. We're going on strike. And I think fair enough. I've listened to all of the RMT interviews. I've been very impressed with the way they've argued it. It's not a kind of public sector entitlement that I've heard. I've heard them talk about 
people beyond train drivers. They represent a lot of people who are on 20, 23, 24 grand a year, not much, and they're suffering and they're taking collective action. It feels like a grown-up thing to do. And I hope that the rail, you know, I get railways a lot. I go on the rail a lot and, you know, they're not run very well by the management and the management have a lot to answer for and I pay, like everybody else does, a fortune to go on them. So I would rather that that money was going to the people who work on them myself. So finally, as ever here on Planet Normal, our listener emails. Keep them coming, your wonderful messages. We love reading them and learn so much from you, our Planet Normal citizens. Here's Rob, a lifelong Tory voter. Boris has all the characteristics of an overprivileged schoolboy, writes Rob, who left to his own devices would struggle to do his own bootlaces up. I certainly wouldn't let him anywhere near a bonfire on his own. Whitehall's lazy and efficient and ineffective, and the NHS is nothing short of a disgraceful black hole. The significant opportunities of Brexit are being wasted and the tax take is nothing short of insulting. Doesn't feel like a Conservative government to me. Difficult times, yes, but the Tories have been in power for many years. This administration is nothing short of a complete shambles. You can't keep borrowing billions without recourse forever. For all of his very many ills, at least Dominic Cummings recognised that the trough needed turning over. Sadly, he just didn't have the personality nor diplomacy required to see much-needed changes through. But now there's no one, no grit in the ointment. I don't like being lied to, having irrational restrictions placed on my freedoms, nor being treated like a fool. I simply can't stand the waste of my tax pounds or the insulting inefficiency, and without some significant change, I shan't bother voting again. I can't imagine for one moment that I'm alone, says Rob, in my disdain. Brendan writes, Dear Liam and Alison... As a regular listener, I normally just about agree with every word spoken on Planet Normal. However, I fear when Planet Normal spacecraft comes crashing to Earth, you're both in danger of drowning in a self-made sea of pessimism. The Tory party is not as devoid of talent as you both stated. There are a number of other candidates who could take his place. David Davis, Steve Baker, Gove, Rob, Truss, Redwood, a very underemployed politician. Whilst none are perfect, all could take the reins. The dearth of talent is on the Labour benches. Long Bailey for Foreign Office, Rayner for Chancellor, anybody? Similarly, you write off BJ too soon. A change of direction to real conservatism could see him plough on and win the next election. Have a dose of his ebullient optimism, even in these troubled times. It will do both of you a world of good. But keep up with the best podcast in the ether, says Brendan. Here's Jane. Why are the British people putting up with this dire lack of health care? Are we so downtrodden and beaten that we would just die rather than complain? And Mandy says on Rwanda, Prince Charles, the Church of England, do they now tell us what we are not allowed to do? If Prince Charles wants to keep these people in this country, I suggest he make room for these men on one of his many estates and in his home. And all the bishops, they have so much land and buildings going spare that they probably have more than enough room to take in these poor migrants and again take care of them until they can get back on their feet. Catherine says, Dear Liam and Alison, just because it's difficult to see who could replace Boris, it doesn't mean they aren't there. An interim PM, in my suggestion, Mark Harper MP, seems to have a clear view of the true conservative direction of travel. And he came to my attention because of his clear thinking and values on the policy of lockdown. And he seems to want a bigger political job. So skip the front bench, look further back and love the podcast as always, Catherine. 
Mark Harper, actually, a former Planet Normal guest, Claire, and listeners can hear our episode with him if they look on the Planet Normal archive. Former Chief Whip, of course, and he was a member of that COVID recovery group during lockdown, as Catherine says. And here's Michael. Given as a country we're living beyond our means and have huge borrowings, rising interest rates and inflation, plus rising energy costs, the future of Boris Johnson is not the real issue. And I doubt that any other party is capable or willing of hitting the nail on the head. Well, that's it from Planet Normal for another week. As we leave our sanctuary of sweet reason, our flying refuge of reasoned views, email of the week. Claire, what was your favourite email? I actually like that Mark Harper one because what they're saying is don't look to the front bench. Use your imagination. Find someone better and decent on the back benches. Catherine, hurrah, you've won a rare as rocking horse poo Planet Normal mug. So send us an email, planetnormal at telegraph.co.uk. Put in the subject heading mug winner, Catherine, with your postal address. And a Planet Normal mug will be winging its way to you. If you enjoy Planet Normal, do leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. It helps others to find us so the Planet Normal family can grow. And do keep emailing us. And as we speed away from our beloved Planet Normal and the madness of Planet Earth comes back into view, thanks as ever to our producers, Isabel Bouchard, Elliot Lampett, and of course our editor, Zoe Hitch. Stay safe and in touch with us and with each other. Until next week, it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from me. And him. (laughs) 